Great. Open your Bibles to Luke 15. Or your Bible apps on your phone. It'll be on the screen behind us as well. Luke, Luke 15, verse 11. When I jump into one of the parables, I'm sure some of you here have been in the company of, of someone who's cracked a joke. And uh, it's quickly followed by like silence, and someone uh, in the group turns around, goes, "You don't get it. You don't get it." And uh, they then have to go on and explain the joke. Have you been in that kind of scenario? We all know that a joke that needs to be explained is just defeating the purpose. So we've like that with parables, parables of Jesus, parables of these small stories that have a big point. And Jesus told parables all the time, and people were bemused and baffled by them. And some people got them. Frederick Buchner, who's a beautiful writer, he says that with parables and jokes both, if you've got to have them explained, don't bother. And so it's like the explanation kills the wonder. There's something about parables that invite us in to muse over them. They kind of get under our skin and they kind of work on us. A little bit like art when you go to an art gallery. Sometimes the art itself says more about us as the observers than it does have some kind of objective meaning. It's supposed to help us reflect and examine life, and reflect, think, and it kind of work on us. And sometimes in different seasons of life, we come back to the same piece of art, and it says something very different to us. It's the same with parables, these stories. And Jesus is like an artist, like a mysterious artist who provokes his audience by telling these stories. And I often wonder why Jesus, as the Messiah, as the one who come to fulfill uh, Israel's promise and be the Messiah and the hope and the king, why he just wouldn't bring clarity, why he just wouldn't bring certainty, why he just wouldn't bring the answers. And yet he often eludes those and tells these stories. And this morning we're going to dive into one of the most popular in Luke 15. as the beginning of a series looking at the parables of Jesus. Um, so join with me. Let's read this parable of the two sons from Luke 15, right through to verse 32. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to the father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And when he had spent everything, a famine, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself to one of the citizens of the country, who sent them out into the, fe the fields to feed pigs. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring in his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard the music and the dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out to him and entreated him. And, but he answered his father, look over these many years, I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who, you, who, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's really worth understanding that Jesus is actually speaking in front of religious leaders um, in, the early chap in the early verses of that same chapter in Luke. They're kind of getting on Jesus back because he's been hanging out with the wrong kinds of people. Um, and they're kind of bringing some judgment on this Jesus, this walking rabbi, this Messiah. And I guess we shouldn't be too hard on the Pharisees. Sometimes we're really hard on the religious leaders and the Pharisees. But these are educated people that really knew the Torah. They really knew the law of Moses. And I guess the question I'd love us to ask today as we just consider this parable, and we're going to get into some discussion groups to discuss it, um, is perhaps where can we locate ourselves in this story? Where can we find ourselves in this story? story. Of course, the parable is of these two sons, and the younger son asks the father for his inheritance. And that kind of move in the Middle East is effective to saying, I just wish you, you would be dead, father. It's a very, very insulting and shameful thing to ask. And it's effectively what the younger son has, has asked. His family has brought great shame upon the father in asking this. And yet the father gives the son the inheritance. In fact, he gives both the sons their inheritance. Even there, we see just such an amazing response from the father and amazing grace. And we know this younger son goes off to the far country and he blows his money and he squanders it. And there's a famine and he's in the end in a pigsty looking after some pigs. And he's hungry and he wants to even eat the food that the pigs have. And if you know your Judaism 101, you will know that ending up in a pigsty is, well, unclean in more ways than one. And he's at the end of his rope. And he's at the end of himself. Maybe you're there today. Maybe some of you here kind of find yourself there, kind of far off, kind of disconnected. Maybe we sometimes all find ourselves in places like that at times in our lives. When we come to the end of ourselves and we cry out to God, like in verse 17, it says this interesting phrase, when he came to himself, like he came to his senses, and you could imagine him crying out to God and what have I done? What have I squandered? And he thinks about the hired servants back home and the lifestyle and the life and the sustenance and the, uh, that they have um, coming from the father's house. And he thinks, I'm starving here. I'm at the end of myself. And he decides that, in fact, he will go back to the father and he will return not as a son, but as a servant. And his plan will be to beg the father to let him back to serve as one of the hired servants. And you can imagine the rejection and the shame that the younger son is experiencing having squandered this inheritance. Not only just to ask for the inheritance, but then to go and squander it in the way that he has. It's a dark hour. And this story that Jesus is telling to these religious leaders and to the listeners around is kind of trying to just invite and invoke and provoke 
a response. And I wonder what it's doing to us as we continue to look at the story. Where might we find ourselves in the story? Perhaps you find yourself in the story of the younger son. And there's hope. It's not the end of the story. A few years ago, a sociologist did a TED Talk, and we all thought that it would be um, not watched by many people. And in fact, it's gone on to become the biggest TED Talk listened to ever, and it's Brené Brown's Power of Shame talk. You may have come across the work of Brené Brown and her work on shame. And in a sense, this story is a lot about shame. I'd recommend her work. Definitely go and check it out. But here's what Brené Brown says about shame. She says that shame is the most powerful master emotion. It's the fear that we are not enough. In fact, just last night, I was reading an interview by Lauren Levine, um, the DJ, and she said one of her greatest fears is actually that she is not enough. And then she said, uh, pointed to her Catholic upbringing as, as the blame for that, she said. But in a sense, it's beyond that, of course. There's something in her that she felt she was not enough. And Maybe many of us feel that kind of unworthiness or that kind of shame in our lives, and it can be a killer. The sense of unworthiness, maybe that is where you locate yourself today. Maybe that's where you find yourself in the story, far off, disconnected, feeling unworthy, feeling unreconciled, even with yourself, like the story's over. Let's just keep reading, because the younger son came to himself and he arose and went back to the father, and he's imagining the reception that he's going to get at the village. And New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey, who's lived most of his life in the Middle East, has written books, commentaries about how Jesus would have been received and how we can understand Jesus in the context of the Middle East. He really helps unpack what this parable is trying to communicate. Because what happens next is radically unorthodox from every perspective. Remember, the, the listeners, the Pharisees, the religious leaders will be listening into this. The younger son, he's brought the shame upon the family. He's been living in destitution. He returns to the village, you imagine, with his head bowed, and he's, a far, he's far off, but the fact they, can, they can see him coming. And if asking for the father's inheritance was a shaming and unforgivable sin, well, wait till they find out how he spent that inheritance, because he spent it living among the Gentiles, and that will push buttons in the religious leaders and the scribes listening on. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing in this story when he says this. Because the Jewish Talmud, the Jewish Talmud is an ancient collection of Jewish teaching and tradition. And within that Jewish Talmud, there is a ceremony called the Kedatzfah. Kedatzah. Say that with me. Kedatzah. Kedatzah. And this is a ceremony that describes, and everyone knows that this will be what would be waiting the younger son coming back. It's a, it's a ceremony that would describe what would happen to a Jewish boy should he lose and spend his inheritance among the outsiders, among the Gentiles. And this is what this ceremony would be. This ceremony would be a ceremony of public shaming. This would be a, a shaming of a young boy. This would, and again, the, the people listening to Jesus' parable would know what Jesus is alluding to here. This is what would happen. The ceremony, the villagers would bring large earthenware jars, and they would fill them with burned nuts and bird corn, and they would break the earthenware jar in front of the guilty person. And in unison together, they would say, you are cut off from us. You are cut off from us. You are cut off from us. Can you imagine 
Can you imagine that? What a story. And we might say to ourselves, well, we live in the 21st century, and uh, that's what happens back in the first century. Things like that, people would do that kind of thing. But I kind of wonder whether we have more psychological or cultural ways of perhaps cutting people out, cutting people off. Family systems theorists, and Stephanie will, will correct me if I'm wrong about this, my understanding is that people talk about that psychological coping mechanism of just cutting off. Of, it's like a way of dealing with relationships. The point being, we don't like often to stay in the tension of hard relationships and to ease the tension. Sometimes we move towards people and we become enmeshed and codependent. And in other circumstances, we cut ourselves off from them just to deal with the anxiety that we live with. And of course, the disclaimer here, there are times in which we need to cut ourselves off from toxic relationships or abusive relationships and situations. It's important to get away, and that's not what we're talking about today, but of course that is, is needable. Cutting off a convenient way of stepping outside of the messiness of, of relationships or bypassing pain or avoiding anxieties. Or at other times, a cutoff is a way of maintaining the purity of the in-group. Cults and religious communities do this all the time. Scientologists call it disconnection. Jehovah's Witnesses call it disfellowshipping. And of course, even the church itself has excommunication. And perhaps there are really extreme and wise and appropriate times when that needs to be the way. But Let's face it, what we're talking about here is a way of shaming and a way of scapegoating and a way of maintaining the purity of the in-group, the shaming of the young boy. And that's not just a first century phenomenon, surely, right? Surely that's a 21st century phenomenon too. It makes for a clean world when we can carve it up into insiders and outsiders and into the pure and into the unpure to the right and into the wrong and into the enlightened and into the unlightened. Mix it clean. And if I'm honest, I find myself in this story. I sometimes wonder if I would be the one with the earthenware jar in my hands shouting, you're cut off from us. We might consider ourselves fairly inclusive. I might consider myself fairly inclusive, but haven't we all got a long list of people that don't belong? What about you? How does this parable meet you today? Where do you find yourself in the story? How does it challenge you where you're at? And then, of course, the Father shows us a different way. Because that's not the ceremony that takes place in the parable of the two sons. The Father acts in a very countercultural manner. And there's this amazing verse in Scripture in this story, which says this, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father had been waiting on the son. And the villagers, you could imagine, as they see the son approaching the village, would be saying, it's him, it's him, how dare he come back? Shame, shame. And yet the father breaks all the rules of that ancient patriarchy and he runs down the road to reconcile himself to the son. 
In fact, the word there for run is like the foot races, the word, the word that's used for the foot races in the stadiums of the horses. It's like you're running. And Luke's educated, and he's choosing these words carefully. The father saw him and had compassion and raced to the son. Not a slow shuffle, but a fast walk. In the Middle East, a man of that age and position always walks slow and in a dignified fashion. And it's safe to assume that this father would never have ran in many, many years because he would be of age. But the father races. To do so, he takes the front of his garment and he lifts it up and he exposes his legs, which is a humiliating and shameful posture. Shameful for the father, and he takes on the shame of the son as he runs toward his son, the prodigal son. Shames himself to reconcile with his son. Brenny Brown says that cruelty culture today is really defined as fighting shame with shame, out shame one another. And yet, this story is about a father who does not compound. Shame. He does not fight shame with shame. He actually enters into it. And he absorbs it. The father is moved with compassion. That word is the word for innards or guts, which the Jews would believe, the Jewish and the Hebrew people would believe is a, where the, the, these emotions of kindness and, a, and affection and love and generosity come from. It's like his intestines are cut up with compassion. But is it not possible to capture in this parable there's a mystery of God revealed? There's a, this is a matchless story of how it reveals the image of the heart of God as a father. A running and racing and compassion-filled father who loves his son so much that he endures the shame of the village himself, takes upon himself the humiliating posture at great cost to find the one who was lost and is dead. It sounds like the gospel to me. And in fact, there are verses all across our scriptures where Jesus shows us the kind of father, the kind of father that God is like, a father who takes our shame and takes our sin and who is like a servant and comes with compassion and love to reconcile us. Why would the father do this? This is the shame that the son deserves, you could say. It belongs to the son, and yet Jesus, in telling this parable, is trying to reshape and reform our imaginations about what God is actually like. A God who leaves the comfort of home, humiliates himself in front of the village for the sake of the son. The heart of the father is on display here. What a beautiful, beautiful image. And we go on to read in this parable the father gives the son sandals which remind him of his dignity gives him a ring which restores relationship with the son gives him a robe which covers his shame and throws not a ceremony of kiratsva but a ceremony of celebration get the fattened calf let's throw a party it's good news right it's good news right Go all Pentecostal this morning on some handkerchiefs. I mean, is this not the kind of religion that we want? What an amazing scene. The younger son who was planning to ask and beg to just simply be a servant 
in his own father's house is now bestowed a banquet and a celebration and a feast. And guess what? The whole village is invited. It's an amazing story. And it should get under our skin. Because we should ask this morning, where do we find ourselves in the story? Where do I find myself in the story? Where do I long to be in the story? Perhaps this morning, maybe you find yourself standing back and observing the story from a distance and going, like, really? Like, did that, like, Jesus telling the story? Like, did the Father really do this? And could, could God really love me like that? Could he really take on the shame and run to me and race to me with the heart of a father and bestow all of this upon me and reconcile me and put a ring on my finger? Is that, could that really be true? Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you're standing a little bit back from the whole thing and just kind of, kind of wondering. Or maybe there's part of you, like part of me, that just wants to be right in the center of the story, being lavished with kisses by the Father who loves you. Maybe that's where you're at today. That is the good news for us all. With a little imagination, we can imagine the fear that the son would have been feeling as he approached the village, and yet that is what he received, the lavish, unexpected, costly demonstration of the father's reconciling love. The father who stands in between him and the village and absorbs the shame. Who does this? And yet the story doesn't stop there because this is a story of shame turning to shalom, of redemption and reconciliation because there's another son, there's the elder son. Let's read on here and it says, now the elder son who was in the field and he came and he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants, likely probably one of the younger boys, the younger people would have been hanging outside the party and he would have called him over like, what's, what's going on? And he said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. And he said to his father, look, these many years have I served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. It's interesting, the word safe and sound, or what is translated into the English safe and sound, that word is pretty much understood in the, in the original, particularly in the Greek, in the Septuagint, as the word shalom, as peace, as reconciliation. Basically, the young boy says, your father has killed the fattened calf because he's, he's made peace and he's reconciled your son back. He's brought shalom. He's achieved that. Shalom instead of shame. And here's the thing about the elder son. The father actually leaves the party to go out to the older son. Again, another custom that the father shouldn't be doing because the host of a party does not go outside. And yet he goes outside in that culture. He goes outside to get the elder son. He breaks custom Again, the father breaks custom to give his son the inheritance. He breaks custom by not entering into the ceremony of shaming. And he breaks custom again to the elder son by going out and entreating him to come in. And he says to him, look, son, all that is mine is yours. 
This is to the elder son. You belong to, but we have to celebrate the lost son who's back. Come into the party. You see, the father loves them both. Again, where do we find ourselves in the story? The father gives both the younger son who's clothed in shame with his choices that he's made, the elder son who's judgmental and probably, probably hiding a lot of unworthiness. And the father loves them both and invites them both into the party. And the father's love for them is so true and so strong. I suppose in closing, I'm just struck by this parable and the characters in it and the question, where am I in this story? Where do I find myself in this story? Where do you find yourself in this story? Where do you long to be in this story? Maybe this morning you come here today to this semi-warm church hall in Donegal Street and you're full of shame today and you don't feel like you belong. And I want to say that you belong and that you're loved and that God the Father adores you. Maybe you're the older son today and you are standing back and judging. And I want to say that you're loved and that the Father adores you. Perhaps, though, we can also see ourselves as the Father. Henry Nouwen says that as the church, we're to become like the Father and we're to throw lavish banquets and we're to celebrate the homecoming of those who have been on the outside. That we are to break customs that would keep obstacles in place. That we are to tell stories and parables that bring shalom and not shame. I wonder if for us, Redeemer, as a community here, is there something for us to reflect upon there? Can we find an example in the Father? What's our response to those on the outside, those that are deemed unworthy? Are we practicing shame or shalom? Are we practicing our own versions of kiratsa? Or are we throwing homecoming celebrations and banquets for those who were lost and are now found? Let the parable do its work.